It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the new podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It is the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we spoke with Peter Borish, Quad Group Chief Strategist, about the current state of the markets and listened to him explain why not trading could be a good strategy. In our business, that's the one constant is worry. That's that's what we are supposed to do all the time is 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 worry. Uh, but no, when we think about oil, it's still you know in historical perspective, its real price isn't that high. We're producing more. Our policies are designed to get more out of the ground. The dollar has strengthened, uh, which. You know, at the margin, particularly since we're now an exporter, it reduces demand. You've seen uncertainty in some foreign countries. That's put some pressure on the oil price. But we look at gold. We look at silver. We look at copper. There's no real price pressure there yet. There's been some bounces in iron ore and things like that. But it's not a major concern. So you go back to your sort of first point to just round it out. Uh, It's kind of, you know, a snoozer, Mm. you know, in terms of both the market and things that we're looking at. Generally speaking, uh, the charts for a lot of things look a lot better than I think when you were on last, which was about a month ago. Tech stocks very close to their all-time highs, in many cases at new all-time highs. Some of your favorites, Visa and MasterCard proxies for the consumer. I have a chart here. They're basically at their all-time highs. Does the uh, action that we've seen in the last few weeks give you some confidence that that what we saw really starting in early February is not the is not yet uh, the start of some uh, new bear market? Well, so the last time I was on, which actually was nice because it was a Friday afternoon, everybody was worried and we're like, this whole thing smells very, very like a bottom. Mm. And uh, Mm. I got on here. We talked about that. So now there's complacency on the other side. So outside of sort of the strength in Visa and MasterCard, we talked also about, you know, the Russell. It's the only one to make new highs. It failed today. If you look at IWM, there's some technical divergences. We look at the utilities and interest rate. That hasn't been able to bounce. Uh, The industrials relative to the S&P, relative to the NASDAQ. So there's a fair amount of warning signs out there. But as I said, it's nothing to particularly to get worried about. I always say that, again, more money is lost anticipating something happening than rather than waiting for the confirmation of that happening. We all want to be smart. We all want to sell the highs. We all want to buy the lows. 
That's dangerous. Look for a confirmation of that high or some validation of that low. And we haven't seen either. So that's why I said it's kind of a snoozer. So we have this chart here that Scarlett brought up of the Russell. What does confirmation mean? That would mean if it breaks to an all-time high, would that be confirmation of... Well, we made new all-time highs today, and then we closed below the high of, of that previous high. If you look closely on that, if you yeah. blow yeah, we'll it up zoom and in you on look it. at... Yeah. Because you can see that it did kind of roll over right, right. there. Yeah, and, and so that's just sort of, you know, one little data point for today where it did it all by itself. You want to see markets strong and in, in sync together. So we just look for the weight of the evidence, and the weight of the evidence right now is blah. Now, <laughs> I, I hate to say that, it, you know, nothing Not more good. exciting, but to take risk, just to take risk because you're there, that's what the guys at DraftKings are going to be talking about later. Well, that's what that's for. This is business, investment, investors' money. When there's things to do, you do it. When there's not things to do, then sit back. So, okay, but bleh is not really an investing strategy, right? I mean, you have you got to come to your clients with more than that. So, what, it's like, what is there anything that is getting no, you excited right now? Not trading is often a really great strategy. The business is about risk-reward. If you don't see the risk-reward in your favor, then there's something not to do. And that's the hardest thing for most people to do when they're sitting in front of the screen or they're looking in markets or they're getting a management fee. Mm -hmm. They feel obligated to do something. No. If you don't feel that the scales are tilted in your favor, then don't do anything. That is an important trading strategy and that is worth a lot of money for people. But block can last a long time, right? I mean, block could be the case for a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Generally speaking, more like a couple of weeks than a couple of months. You know, I always say in this business, a day can be a very long time, right? A stock gap's lower on news and it turns around and rallies. We trade a lot of different things. It's a market of stocks, I always say. It's not a stock market. Sometimes in the aggregate, but you saw in all your things when you started out, there's individual movements. But in the aggregate right now, as you saw, you, again, you were just talked about, oh, the S&P's plus or minus, it's six basis points today. Hmm. That's not... Uh, a period where you're going to have a risk reward. The last time I was on and we said, okay, things are really lining up here. This is an opportunity from a probabilistic nature to take a buy. We're not there yet on a probabilistic nature either to say this is a really good top or this is a point where we're going to be accelerating. To me, we're closer to the highs if we break the January 26 highs and there's confirmation and technically and economically, then that's something you might want to go with. But we're not anywhere. Well, we're not. I don't want to say not anywhere near, but we're we reasonably we're far away, yeah. away from that. And we're certainly much further away from the February 26 low. So that's the accordion. And it's not that exciting. We also spoke with DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins about sports betting potentially becoming legal in every state after a Supreme Court decision. He said it could be a $150 billion market. So last summer when the court announced it was taking up the case, we immediately shifted a lot of our focus from our product and engineering and other members of our team to building a product and getting ready for this. And 
I think from that standpoint, we're in great shape. We have a product that we feel good about, and we're, we're ready to go. Um, you know, from the getting up and running standpoint, there's still a few steps that have to take place. This clears the way for states, but the states still have to, most of them have to pass laws, a few have, and those that have have to issue regulations and then issue licenses. So uh, we're engaging with the regulators. We hope to be uh, in there day one, but there's still a little bit of work to be done before that happens. And day one will come first in New Jersey and Delaware, I believe? So I think New Jersey will be an early mover. Delaware already has a form of sports betting, so they're they're going to probably continue with that. Mm-hmm. Um, West Virginia has passed a law. New York has a law in place. Uh, Pennsylvania has a law in place. So I think those will be some of the states that move quickly. Now, in Europe, or at least in London, if you want to bet on sports, you just they're all over the place. The yeah. little shops on the corner, you just go in and place your bet and maybe watch it. What do you expect the market will look like here? Will we see a lot of physical locations? And what would you expect the breakdown would be between sort of like online wagering versus sort of a little corner shop next to Yankee Stadium? So, you know, my guess in the short term is that the physical locations will be kept to mostly casinos and racetracks. There may be some states that allow for it in other places, but I think that'll probably be most it for the uh, physical locations. Online and mobile so far have been in uh, almost all of the bills that we've seen introduced in states, so that's the part we're really excited about. You mentioned the U.K. When that market started to develop, you didn't have online and mobile. That's a newer Uh thing. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Um, Now they do, and now it's a huge part. It's the majority of where the betting comes from. So I think you'll see that happen here much faster. Have you estimated what kind of money this could generate, both for you and just the the full addressable market? Well, right now, it's hard to estimate, but some people say there's hundreds of billions of dollars. I think the most common estimate I've seen is $150 billion wagered illegally on the black market currently. So I think depending on how many states decide they want to legalize and regulate, a lot of that will shift onto, uh, into the legal and regulated market. But it will depend on how many states and which states. And then of that, how much goes to taxes and how does the tax structure work? And how much potentially goes to the leagues? Because the NBA, for example, has said it wants perhaps some sort of revenue sharing with this. So um, the taxes will definitely vary state by state, and I hope most will will see this as a great growth opportunity and not overtax it. Um, But, you know, depends on the state. Some will have higher taxes than others. Uh, The leagues have also asked for an integrity fee, which I think uh, is a good thing. I think that having them feel supportive and having them feel like their product, which they own and they create is, um, you know, they're being compensated for that because there will be increased 
increased costs for them as well to monitor integrity and things like that. So I think that'll hopefully be a component of most of the legislation as well. And it's going to be such a big market that gets created, really that gets shifted from the black market. I think there's mm-hmm. enough for everybody from the states to the leagues to us to the casinos to all have a lot of growth from this. I'm glad Julie brought up the leagues because the NBA and other leagues, of course, they want a cut of that, but they're also pushing for some kind of federal standards, a national framework that they keep talking about. What does that look like to you versus what um, the NBA wants? Well, I think a national framework probably for them looks the same as what they're pushing in the states. So I would think that that's probably just no different. It's just making it Congress instead of state by state. Mm-hmm. For us, it would be nice to have a federal framework because then it doesn't end up being kind of whack-a-mole state by state. You don't end up with potentially different regulations in different places, which is hard to operate, but we'll be fine either way. Does this open up a massive market into esports betting as well? Because mm. right now we're talking mm. physical sports, professional sports, but surely that would be the future as well. Our hope is that most states also allow for esports betting. I think that's a very good thing for the states and consumers want it. So our hope is that that will be part of the regulation framework state by state as well. What would, do you expect to happen to the uh, daily fantasy part of the business? How much of the appeal of that business is people who just want action but can't get it through the sort of traditional form of betting on sports? I think it'll grow, and the reason why is that most of our customers who are playing DraftKings are already betting on sports anyway. About almost 80% of them say that they're currently wagering on the black market, so, um, and I suspect that might be a little underreported given uh, the nature of the question. Um, so I don't think much changes other than hopefully they'll decide that we have a great product and they want to do all of it with us. And I think you'll also just see more customers coming on, which should grow the daily fantasy sports. New business. customers, you mean? Yeah, just more people, more activity on the, on the product, right. on the app should create more, uh, I think, interest in every product that we offer. What, which sport do you think will be the biggest? Well, you know, certainly football is the one that I think is a high candidate to be the biggest. You never know because there'll be innovation in different types of betting uh, products. Do you think there'll be prop bets just like there are off the books? Yeah. Yeah, I would. Well, each state will approach it a little differently, but I think most will allow that. Live betting will be a big thing. So if you're not happy with your bet in the first quarter and Uh, you want to change it, you can do that. It's a short season, though. It is a short season. So today we actually see quite a bit of volume in baseball and basketball because there's so many more games. So mm-hmm. I think you might see the same thing. Those will be really big sports as well. That's why esports is going to be huge because it's yeah. all year round Always everywhere going. in the world. All around the world, all year round. It is, and, and it's what most of the younger generations focused on. So it's only going to grow over time. And Connor Sen, Portfolio Manager for New River Investments and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joined us to discuss the supply and demand equation for higher education. We discussed whether the college admissions process is starting to shift in the students' favor. Well, you've had sort of three different trends that have led to increased demand for higher ed over the past, especially 10 or 20 years. First is the sort of secular increase in demand for higher ed, going back to the sort of World War II generation, the GI Bill following that. Second, you had the sort of large millennial generation that entered college like me in the late 1990s and is now exiting it for the most part. And then third, after 2008 and the financial crisis, you had a tough job market and people felt like they had to get a great college education if they wanted to have any good chance at a job. And so all three of those are abating to some extent where uh, educational attainment's kind of flattened out. 
millennials are now done, the generation following millennials is smaller. And then with the job market so good, with the unemployment rate below 4%, people don't, especially at the lower levels, don't need to go to college as much the way they might have felt five or 10 years ago. So, uh, Connor, you know, it's interesting uh, talking about your column today. This week, we got data out of the Federal Reserve showing that the total volume of student loan debt in the United States has surged to one and a half trillion dollars. That is double where it was in 2010. How much does that uh, play into the whole uh, discussion about colleges and whether it's worth it? Well, I think sort of that's, that to some extent is a reflection of the financial crisis, especially at the state school level where state budgets were really hurt by the, the crisis with tax receipts falling. And so they sort of pushed the financing back to the schools, which eventually went to students. And so as tuition rose and people had to go to school to get a good job, they had to borrow more and more money to get through school. And so unfortunately, all of this has led to the student debt crisis and the sort of outsized demand for higher ed. When we talk about the demand supply situation, what's also interesting, of course, is that a lot of supply was added in recent decades. Schools spent a lot of money, um, added capacity, uh, and of course, we've seen a lot of demand increase as well with immigrants, uh, or I should say foreign students, particularly from China, from India, from Russia, come in and pay those high international tuition rates. Do you think, given the tone from this White House uh, against immigration, that will lead to less demand? Well, we've seen sort of the demand for visas to, to go to higher ed fall off over the past couple of years, especially from China and India, to your point. And so that will certainly play into uh, some of these schools that have been very reliant on foreign students, like Purdue, for instance, has been very reliant on Chinese students. The other factors, we're going to have a sort of a geographic tiering between the Northeast and the Midwest, which have much worse demographics than the South and the West. And the Northeast and the Midwest is where a lot of schools actually already are. So you have got schools like Southern Illinois University that have already seen falling enrollment, and you're going to see more of that in the years to come. So, Connor, can you give us some size and scope, some sense of how many colleges could end up closing as a result of this shift? The numbers are hard to say. I would say if you look at sort of the tiering, you're gonna, your elite schools like the Ivies and the private uh, elite schools are going to be just fine. Your uh, flagship are. state schools like Virginia and Michigan, they'll, they'll be fine. It's really that second and third tier that are competing more with the job market that are really going to suffer. Um, for instance, there's a school in Massachusetts called Mount Ida that just was bailed out by the state recently. And I think that'll be a discussion in a lot of these states about whether to bail out these schools and what to do with mm. them. Do you think that uh, there's going to be more discussion, Connor, about companies creating sort of skills training programs or having uh, very technical institutes that people can do a year in? Is that something people are talking about now? We're seeing a little bit of that. The Wall Street Journal had a story recently about uh, companies actually looking to recruit high school students because they're so short of workers. And so I think at least while the labor market is as good as it is right now, you'll see some of that. I guess the question is, if we have a downturn and the unemployment rate goes back to 5 or 6%, will companies then back off? But I think at least in the short term, that's certainly a conversation that people are having. I know you were having a debate online as well with uh, others about what kind of role the government can play in all this as higher ed adjusts to this new reality, which admittedly is not happening yet, but will happen in years to come, especially when it comes to um, government support or funding of research. What's your take on that? I mean, I think the, it's sort of a tough question, and especially since, you know, so much of this is done at the state level, it's sort of, you know, will state governments, especially those in the Midwest that are budget constrained, have the resources to sort of keep these schools afloat or invest more in research? Will the federal government decide, probably not in this administration, but in some future administration, to get more involved? And I think that's a sort of an unknown uh, question at this point. And that does it for What You Missed This Week. Reminder to tune in to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Monday through Friday on Bloomberg TV.
Thanks for listening. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.